snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and the following stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong, right here in Beijing. Alibaba may sound like an unfit name for a Chinese company, yet its history has no question become a legend. Founded in a shabby, jam-packed flat in East China's Hangzhou city in 1999, this internet corporation has grown to be the largest retailer around the globe. Its founder Ma Yun, or widely known as Jack Ma in the West, is an admirably unusual man. Despite his modest beginning, this plain-looking skinny fellow has gone from an English teacher to one of the world's most influential internet gurus. But what is the story behind Jack Ma's rags to riches success, and how does Alibaba, a company that starts from nowhere, rival Walmart and Amazon? To find out the answers, our reporter Shi Yu talks with Duncan Clark, author of the new book Alibaba: The House That Jack Ma Built, to retrace this unlikely tale. Mr. Clark, welcome to the show. For starter, may I ask you what inspired you to write a book about Alibaba? What made you want to tell its story? There are two reasons why I wanted to write the book. Firstly, I think the story of the internet in China is a fascinating one for the impact that it's had on the country, the economy,、uh, but also the story of Alibaba itself is very interesting, given that、uh, it's a very unlikely story. I was、uh, joking yesterday with a friend that uh, uh, if I had pitched this book as fiction, no, no publisher would have taken it up. It seems impossible, and that's what appeals to me about the story. Well, it's very interesting that you said the story of Alibaba is kind of fictional. Why is that? Well, Jack is a very unlikely corporate hero in a way because he's not a typical tech entrepreneur in any in any sense. We think of most tech entrepreneurs as being like you know Mark Zuckerberg who went to Harvard、mm-hmm. or perhaps the the Google founder is very strong in technology and math. And and, and Jack, as we know, was was never very good in fact at school, particularly at, at math. So he has. An unusual、uh, story for somebody coming from from very local sort of environment who kind of made it all the way to the top, and you know he was an English teacher. I mean, how many corporate leaders today can say that they started out as an English teacher? So, how did you get to know about him? So, I first met Jack in 1999,、um, a few months after he had founded Alibaba along with his wife and、uh, 16 others. And、uh, my colleague and I,、uh, at the time, we were、uh, writing a column in the South China Morning Post, a newspaper which Jack actually now owns. <laughs> But back then,、uh, was a, a column about technology in China. We'd heard interesting things about this company in、uh, in Hangzhou.、Uh, and after my colleague wrote the、uh, column, I、uh, decided to travel to Hangzhou to meet him face to face because my colleague said he was a very interesting. Somewhat crazy sounding、um, in terms of his ambition, but but a very approachable and, and interesting person. So, how did Alibaba look like around that time?、Uh, you know, it was the classic startup. It was messy.、Um, there were I remember using、uh, the bathroom in the apartment. It was a small apartment, which is still there, of course, and still used by the company today. This is where they started the Taobao venture a few years later in 2003. But back then, it was you know apartment that clearly everybody in the、uh, In the apartment was working around the clock, and when I used the,、uh, the bathroom in the apartment, I noticed there were two mugs stuffed with、uh, toothbrushes, and it was clear to me that the people working there were basically almost living there as well. In fact, Jack had a requirement that people live no longer than fi- no further than 15 minutes from the office. He needed people to be <laughs> available. 
committed. And there was a very strong sense of commitment to, to him and to the, the cause. Uh, almost like a family-style company feeling. Mm-hmm. But this family-style company is now the world's biggest online retailer. In your book, you contribute Alibaba's success to this Iron Triangle tactic. Could you elaborate it a little bit? Sure. This is Jack's uh, formulation. Um, he described the underlying, the core business of their of Alibaba is really uh, three things. What he calls the Iron Triangle is e-commerce, logistics, and finance. Now, e-commerce uh, today, what we think most of Alibaba, these people in China think of Alibaba, is for Taobao and its consumer website, and also Tmall. But those two sites are, if if there weren't the other two sides of the triangle, would not be successful. And the other two sides of the triangle are um, logistics, so the ability to have packages delivered on time reliably, um, and also finance, so particularly Alipay. Alipay um, is many people know in China will increasingly be seen overseas is actually a means for Chinese to live their lives uh, entirely without a wallet now. <laughs> and they're not alone. There's also TenPay and other providers. But Alipay gives the convenience and the trust for consumers to buy online without fear of you know, being ripped off or, or paying for something and not receiving the goods. At, at its core, it started as an escrow service. So you, you would not release the funds uh, to the merchant that had sent them until you were satisfied with the goods. And mm-hmm. I describe in the book that this Jack really, his success, or Jack and his co-founders, and we should not, not forget the six women of the 18 co- uh, co-founders, uh, their success really uh, comes from building this architecture of trust. And the Iron Triangle really is the essence of that, why the machine works. What you just described about Alibaba kind of reminds me of Amazon. But these two companies provide different services. In your book, you mentioned about some really interesting cases about how like Taobao or changing the social malls in China, like even finding a fake girlfriend online. Yes, you know, there are services for everything, you know, willing buyer, willing seller. I mean, Alibaba is a series of marketplaces. You know, ultimately, Taobao is the, is the street market. Like, much as you would go into a street market in China and buy, excuse me, vegetables, you might also find people offering services. Um, and uh, one of them is, yes, you could uh, help find uh, a date. You could even find somebody to help break up a relationship. Um, or another aspect of Chinese societies, increasingly the aging societies we know, the aging population, and uh, there has been, I think it's a law actually passed that uh, requires um, children to visit their elderly yeah, parents. Yeah, in Shanghai. And um, so you can you can actually outsource that too. I don't know quite how that works. If you outsource somebody, <laughs> your parents might know that it's not, not you visiting, but apparently um, there are services for that too. So anything under the sun, basically, you can find uh, on these websites. Mm-hmm. It's quite interesting because you mentioned about for American consumers, e-commerce feels like just a way of shopping. But here, because of the Alibaba, now e-commerce has become a kind of lifestyle. Why is that? You're right. I mean, Jack Ma has lots of quotes, and one of them is that in the U.S., e-commerce is a dessert, but in China, it's the main course. What he means by that is that traditional retail, if you think about offline retail, you know, is actually very efficient in, in the U.S. and in the West in general. You know, we have um, companies like Walmart. Um, before that, we had the department stores from 100 years ago, you know, um, Marshall Fields and so on. There's a long history of building retail in the United States. But if you look at China, um, there are actually much fewer retailers in terms of things like per square meter per retailer, um, per person rather. There are far less retail space for individuals. Um, a lot of the initial uh, retailers in China, and I remember this from 1994 when I 
moved to Beijing. These were state-run shops that, frankly, didn't have the best uh, range uh, of products or prices or customer service. And so, to some extent, for a lot of people, not just in Beijing and Shanghai, but in the second, third, third, fourth-tier cities, um, they never really had experienced much choice uh, or, or service, frankly. And e-commerce has kind of helped leapfrog that. Many people have discovered the range of choices they have as consumers through e-commerce, thanks to the logistics and the finance uh, uh, angles that I mentioned. So it is safe to say that Alibaba has already reshaped China's economic structure. Yes, I mean,、uh, on one level, we should have some caution to say that e- you know e-commerce and companies like Alibaba and also internet companies in general, like Tencent and others. They can do a lot to help shift、um, Chinese consumption、uh, forward, but they can't do everything. I mean, ultimately, Chinese consumers、uh, have to be more confident in their lives to save less and spend more. Which is, as you know, if you look at the Chinese economy versus the U.S.,、um, mm-hmm. the U.S. economy is driven by over two thirds of the economy is, is driven by consumer spending.、Mm-hmm. Uh, in in China, it's perhaps、uh, not even half. And so that some of it comes from the fact that people in China save too much money, <laughs> in the sense that they put money aside for a rainy day, for their healthcare, for their retirement, for pensions, etc. So there's going to be a lot of economic restructuring that needs to happen in China. But in the meantime, you know what we see through companies like Alibaba is how consumers have a sense of empowerment and actually increasingly buying services as well as products.、Um, there's all kinds of crazy things you can buy on on Taobao, for example. <laughs> And I think that's a sign of you know, consumers increasingly moving into the driving seat of the economy. But it doesn't happen overnight. But it, it is very tangible、uh, example of how consumption will reshape the Chinese economy. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. You are listening to Ink and Quill with Yang Yong, Duncan Clark. Is an expert of the Chinese technology landscape. Arriving in Beijing in 1994, he founded the investment advisory firm BDA China. His debut book, Alibaba: The House That Jack Ma Built, draws on the writer's personal experience as an early advisor to Alibaba, as well as an eyewitness of the evolution of the internet in China. Now our reporter Shi Yu continues her conversation with a sophisticated consultant, who will uncover the myth surrounding Alibaba as well as Jack Ma, the charismatic founder of this e-commerce empire. Okay, Mr. Clark. Enough talking about the glorious past of Alibaba. Now we need to see its downsides because, as a marketplace, Alibaba also allows fake goods to thrive on its platform. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean that's a valid concern. Um, but it's not just just in the beginning. I mean, there will always be fake goods. This is the case on eBay and you know other sites as well. Any time when you allow merchants to sell directly to consumers, effectively, you know, who knows what they're selling and what people are buying? It's not just the sellers. There are people who want to buy fakes, of course. So fakes will always be, frankly, a problem for the Taobao system、uh, and for e-commerce generally. There's never going to be a market that is entirely free of them. The question is, what is the company doing to address the problem?、Uh, some brands feel that it's better to work with companies like Alibaba, particularly with Tmall,、um, which is where brands can actually sell directly to consumers, and Alibaba will take a percentage of those trades. Some brands prefer to do that than to sort of fight the company overall. But there, there are some companies that still choose not to cooperate in any way with Alibaba and say that this is a systemic problem.
I think it's like there's a game called whack-a-mole when you're trying to whack a mole on the head. If you if you crack down in one area on one mole, you know, another mole will pop up somewhere else. And in the book, I describe some of the tactics that Alibaba uses to verify the identity of merchants. Because if they try to ban one of these 9 million merchants from trading on their sites, of course, that person, you know, might be Miss Wong one day, and then Miss Wong might become Mr. Chen somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, there's, you know, it, it's a cat and mouse game. Um, but, you know, for some brands, definitely they feel it's not enough. And um, this continues to bedevil, uh, frankly, Alibaba and other companies. But if you look at the trend, the opportunities to sell online, and even to combat fraud online, we've seen, um, you know, some companies say, look, we can actually learn about people faking our products and trading them. For example, lubricant oil manufacturers who actually have been able to tra- tra- trace some of the most egregious pirates and actually have them, in some cases, arrested. So, you know, there are going to be incidences of using technology to combat uh, fakes and other times when, frankly, the, fake, the fakes and the pirates win. It's, 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 never, uh, it's never over this game. But maybe that is the reason why Alibaba is shifting its priority right now. You know, Jack Ma is advising his companies to a new front, such as media and finance. No, you're right. I mean, I think, to some extent, it would be natural for any company to want to extend its services as its consumers, its, its customers change. You know, Chinese customers, uh, you know, 10 years ago were very focused on, let's say, more the basic things of life. Or if you go back 20 years, it was about having a refrigerator, a bicycle, a microwave, perhaps, um, and a television. Today, it's moving far beyond that um, into services. Uh, well, for, firstly, more sophisticated products, um, but also more sophisticated services. Uh, and that's not just these funny things like outsourcing a breakup with your girlfriend. It might be also financial services, insurance, uh, banking products. And we saw this most uh, most notably when Alibaba launched something called Yuabao, which is like a leftover treasure account, which allowed people to earn additional interest Mm-hmm. on money that they had put into their Alipay account. And that, within, I think, nine months, had attracted $100 billion of deposits, um, became becoming the fifth largest money market uh, fund in the world, just because Chinese consumers are looking for a better return on their investments. And they don't always get the best service, frankly, from the Chinese state banks. So financial service is probably the most significant area, I think, the, the, the most crucial area for Alibaba's future. Um, it's one that they've become a big player in because of their success in e-commerce, but it's an area that they're going to be seeking to develop. And you also mentioned media. Yes, I mean, you know, Chinese increasingly spend a growing percentage of their disposable income on um, things that are not the basics of life. It's not housing and food anymore. I mean, that's still important, but people have more disposable income to buy content, you know, to spend money on movies and entertainment generally. And this is an area where Alibaba is investing in the United States, in Hollywood, um, but also at home with Alibaba Pictures. And they've launched things like TBO, which is like a T-Mall box office, a bit like Netflix-style service. So we'll see from finance to entertainment and, and many other areas, we'll see Alibaba and other internet companies playing. Mm-hmm. But what's next for Alibaba and Jack Ma? In your last chapter, you also threw out the question regarding its future. Right. I mean, so Jack, I think, is clearly an icon in China amongst entrepreneurs and to some extent amongst consumers who sort of identify, you know, what Alibaba has done with consumption. Um, but there are risks. There are definitely risks in how far the company can go into new areas, particularly in finance and media, healthcare, other areas. And so, yeah, I use the term icon or Icarus. We know that Icarus flew too close to the sun and ended up uh, having the, the wax wings melt. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I joke, of course, that... Uh, you know, he could 
probably find uh, a new pair of wings uh, on top of because you can find everything on top of it. <laughs> um, but more seriously, I mean, there are risks of, you know, frankly, taking on state companies, which are very powerful, um, as well as other risks, which are, you know, frankly, over, uh, over expansion. You know, can they keep the human capital? Can they keep the team focused? Can they continue to attract talent? Um, and, you know, Jack has a pet hatred of bureaucracy. They, there's a lot of restructuring in the company to keep it a flat organization with you know, many different departments who are accountable to themselves. So it's, it's a real challenge for any company. You know, today, there are 40,000 employees, but you know, if they continue to grow at this rate, they will be um, much more. You know? So can they keep this culture? So there's a big emphasis in the company on the corporate culture, as well as you know, the risks of dealing with you know, the government and, and Chinese companies uh, that are state-backed that might be trying to see, you know, uh, break their wings. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, you just mentioned about corporate culture. What is the corporate culture in Alibaba? Well, interesting. I, tell you, I, just, I just realized it's Ali Day today in China, which is an annual holiday that Alibaba has for its uh, employees to celebrate the Ali spirit. So it's kind of an unusual corporate culture. I mean, you know, frankly, unique to each company. But in the case of, of Alibaba, it's a very kind of collegiate, uh, teamwork-driven um, culture the Ali Day that is celebrated now in May every year celebrates uh, how Alibaba uh, overcame the challenge of SARS, which you remember in 2003 it was a sort of horrible uh, uh, incident for China and many, many countries around the world, but it was particularly difficult for um, companies who found themselves locked up in homes and, and not being able to go out. And this, uh, this idea of like, team spirit and overcoming adversity today, we'll see Jack will uh, attend a kind of ceremony to celebrate the weddings of, uh, I think, 102 employees um, of Alibaba. Now, they're not getting married at Alibaba. These are people who've already got married, but that's sort of a company celebration for their nuptials. And why 102? Well, because, you know, Jack wants to build a company that will last 102 years from 1999 when he founded the company to take it, uh, you know, into spanning three centuries. That's the vision. <laughs> he really is looking for the long term. So it gives you a sense. I mean, it's a little weird. Uh, frankly, each company culture is, uh, is different, but this one is, is very much about long term, about teamwork, about striving to overcome obstacles. Sounds very inspiring. So which Western high-tech billionaire will you compare Jack Ma to, you know, maybe Mark Zuckerberg, Stephen Jobs? Yeah, I mean, I think it's always interesting to kind of put uh, these founders on a on a map, you know, and sort of say how do they how do they relate to each other? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there are some elements of a similarity between Jack and Steve Jobs. In one particular aspect, is what has been described at Apple as the reality distortion field, uh, which is how Steve Jobs was able to get people to make huge sacrifices and kind of change the world, actually change the future. As we've seen, how how impactful Apple has been. It takes uh, a lot of vision and sacrifices, and I think there's an element of that with Jack. Unlike Steve Jobs, we haven't seen the same incidences of, frankly, uh, very almost dictatorial behavior or very sometimes shaming people in public and so on. Uh, again, some people dispute the, the accounts of, of how Steve Jobs has been described, but Jack, by contrast, I think has appealed to people's best instincts in terms of his sense of humor, his sense of teamwork, and so on. That has been part of his method, but the, in the end result is that he did... Um, create this reality distortion field. Another would be Jeff Bezos at Amazon. Now, Jeff Bezos and Jack Ma have a very different background. Jeff Bezos went to Princeton. His mm-hmm. parents were quite wealthy oil executives. Uh, Jeff Bezos worked on Wall Street and actually had the idea for Amazon based on quantitative analysis. By contrast, Jack you know, got one out of 120 in his first uh, Gaokao national exam in math. You know, it was a terrible result. 
world, even for anybody. <laughs> but Jack and Jeff Bezos also have focused very much on the customer. What that means at uh, Amazon is that any time Amazon launches a new product, it has to be analyzed as if or pitched as if to a customer. And sometimes Amazon has gone for years without making profits. Similarly, Alibaba, for many years, um, Taobao was not making any money at all because Jack insisted that it be offered for free to merchants. So mm-hmm. there, there are some important differences between these individuals, uh, but some also similarities. Like all these entrepreneurs who build these really global, impactful companies have something, frankly, a little odd about them <laughs> and some kind of passion that allows them to take huge risks and actually ultimately prevail. Mm-hmm. And I think this book is really interesting, even though the title suggests it's about Alibaba and Jack Ma. But you also talk about the, you know, the evolution of internet in China. Yes, I mean to some extent, Alibaba and you know is kind of the you know a lot of people are attracted to you know rich, successful individuals and companies. But there's a lot of interesting stories. Uh, you're right in the early days of the Chinese internet, how it's even possible that the internet came to China, and mm-hmm. I sort of describe how that happened. And some of the early companies, like I mentioned, 8848, uh, um, and others that still are around, but are much smaller today, companies like Sohu and uh, Sina, which actually now effectively partner with Alibaba. You know, how did these early entrepreneurs build the first wave of companies? They took massive risks. And I think you know, there's a sense of appreciation for the struggles that they have made um, in contributing to this massive uh, growth of the Internet in China. Um, and also some of the difficulties of Western companies who've tried to crack the market as well, and the reasons for that, including the Great Firewall, but also, you know, other issues uh, that, uh, in terms of eBay particularly, that I profiled, their, you know, failure, frankly, to build on their early entry to the market. So it's, it's a pretty interesting kind of uh, battlefield <laughs> to look at. Yeah. So what do you want your readers to learn from this book? Well, I think in the West, one thing I didn't mention, which I, I think uh, is, it plays a big role in the book, is the importance of uh, Zhejiang province and also the Yangtze River Delta mm-hmm. um, in terms of the companies that really, the entrepreneurs who took the risks before the Internet, I mean, going back to the early 1980s, who really started to build the private sector in China. If you look at most of the growth and jobs and economy and innovation today in China, it's coming from private companies, not from the state. And that's kind of a natural evolution that we've seen in many countries. Um, but the scale of it in China is truly awesome. I mean, some of these cities like Yiwu and Wenzhou in China you know, are quite well known within China, but very little is known about them overseas. Um, so I tried to use the book, frankly, as an opportunity to educate people a little bit about this thriving entrepreneurial culture that we see in coastal areas of China, but particularly in, in Zhejiang province. I think the combination of that with the Internet is really why um, we're seeing these, these major companies emerge like, like Alibaba. It's bringing these vibrancy of, of, the, of the market in China to, to the world. Is Zhejiang going to be the Chinese Silicon Valley? <laughs> yeah, there's always uh, danger in comparisons uh, with Silicon Valley. Um, but to some extent, we are seeing, you know, not just Alibaba, but we're seeing a lot of in- interesting companies emerging in Hangzhou. Some of it is indirectly related to Alibaba, the fact that you have a successful local company and you have a lot of IT infrastructure, you have a lot of uh, uh, entrepreneurial talent, uh, capital. And you know, a lot of it will derive from people who've worked at Alibaba or inspired by Alibaba. And we also have, I mean, another important city is Shenzhen, I think, you know, um, just across from Hong Kong, where we see, particularly for hardware, it's really world central sourcing. Uh, China Silicon Valley is several cities, but Hangzhou is going to be a major, major node in that. So do you have, like, any other plan for your next book? Maybe something still <laughs> about the Chinese internet landscape? 
Yeah, I, mean, I think, you know, I, I like to joke that the most interesting chapter in the book is chapter 13, and there are only ch- 12 chapters in the book. Because <laughs> to some extent, we're all watching how Alibaba and these other in- internet companies are going to be changing and adapting. And so I feel like, to some extent, the next book is, is kind of writing itself. Uh, it's, just, it's the next chapter of Alibaba. But, uh, but no, I think, I think there's a lot of interest in Chinese entrepreneurs on the global scene. I think they don't happen every year, frankly. And because Jack speaks English as a great communicator, he's kind of he's better understood or there's more interest in him. But there are others emerging that I'm keeping, a, keeping my eyes on. <laughs> we will look forward to that. Thank you very much, Mr. Clark. Thank you very much. Good to be on the show. That was Shi Yu talking with Duncan Clark, writer of the book Alibaba, The House That Jack Ma Built. It's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget that there are always more interesting happenings in the literary world. To learn more about us, you are always welcome to follow our Facebook account, China Plus. Thanks for listening. I am Yang Yong. See you next week.